Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Since the 2015 murder of nine African-Americans in a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina by a white supremacist, there have been increased calls for the removal of Confederate flags and monuments from public spaces in the United States. Following the violent alt-right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in August of 2017, the calls for the removal of these monuments and symbols were again renewed. With the tragic killing of George Floyd in May of last year, calls for removal again intensified and many states and cities throughout the country took steps to remove these divisive symbols of white supremacy and oppression of black people. However, in North Carolina, one of the states with the most Confederate monuments, a 2015 law makes it difficult to remove Confederate monuments in North Carolina located on public property. But notwithstanding the North Carolina law, slowly but surely these monuments are coming down. For example, in August of 2018, Silent Sam, a Confederate monument at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill was pulled down by protesters. In November of 2019, Chatham County officials removed a Confederate statute from the Pittsburgh courthouse after determining that the statute was on private property. Last year, Confederate monuments were removed from the state capitol grounds in Raleigh after concluding that the monuments were a public safety risk. In addition to monuments being removed, streets with Confederate names are being renamed in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the North Carolina Department of Motor Vehicles will no longer issue specialty license plates with Confederate symbols. Despite this progress, there are still far too many Confederate monuments in public spaces in North Carolina. And the North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities, or NCCRED, is launching a new campaign to remove Confederate monuments from courthouse grounds in North Carolina. Joining us tonight to talk about Confederate monuments is attorney James Williams, retired Orange County chief public defender and co-founder of NCCRED. Also joining us is Dr. William Sturkey, professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill and author of a book titled Hattiesburg, an American City in Black and White. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you for having us, uh, April. Thank you so much for having us, y'all. So we're going to get into, um, James, the, the campaign that your organization is launching. But before we do that, I want us to do a historical um, discussion or, or um, view of Confederate monuments. So if you could both, and James, we'll start with you, if you could 
uh, just kind of generally speaking, talk about when and why Confederate monuments were erected in the first place. Well, um, you, you, you could have, maybe you should have started with um, Professor Sturkey, because uh, yeah, he is a historian. I, I kind of read a lot, I, I simply say, but um, it's, it's my understanding that most of these uh, monuments were erected um, between, say, 1890 and 1921 or so, uh, during that period that, um, you know, some have referred to as the uh, Nadir, I forget uh, the scholar who coined that um, term, to refer to this period. Um, and then the second greatest period may have been in the, you know, mid to late 50s up through the 1960s when the the you know, what we refer to as the modern civil rights uh, period um, was unfolding. And in terms of why uh, they were erected, um, I think uh, there, there are several reasons. The, the main reason is um, to facilitate um, this uh, lost cause narrative uh, to um, honor the Confederacy uh, and to uh, intimidate um, and um, terrify African-Americans to make sure that they stayed in their place. Um, you know, sort of in, in, in a nutshell, uh, I think was, was why uh, they were e erected and why, um, why they're still currently maintained. Uh, uh, you know, I think some of those factors apply. So that's, that's my unschooled version of why they were erected and when. Well, thank you for that. Now, uh, our historian, let's get your thoughts. Well, James is a historian. You know, we're, we're all historians to a certain extent, it's the older profession. Um, but so James pretty much hit the nail on the head, but you know, I just wanna highlight all the things that happened before the monuments went up. You know, A lot of people think these monuments were dropped by the ghost of Jefferson Davis in 1865, but that couldn't be further from the truth. They're not 150 years old. Most of them are about 100 to 110 years old. So before the monuments went up, what had to happen was the Civil War had to end. Reconstruction had to end, right? This 12-year period where African-Americans were folded into American life, given some basic rights, such as the vote and citizenship. And then this period that happened after Reconstruction, when there was you know, a violent reaction to Black rights and African-Americans' rights were stripped away as white Southerners built Jim Crow. So we get the 1860s happen, Reconstruction takes us to the 1870s. Then we get this period where Jim Crow begins to harden. And then after all of that is when you get the Confederate monuments. So you get the 1890s, the early 1900s, the 1910s, you know, Silent Sam and Chapel Hill was put up in 1913, 48 years after the end of the war, right? So it was only after the beginning of Jim Crow society, the solidification of white supremacy in the law that the monuments really started to go up. And one interesting idea that, that James didn't mention, but I think has gotten a little bit lost in our current discourse, is the way that the South was responding to what was happening in the North. So a lot of elite Southerners 
saw two things. They saw Northerners, right, the victorious side of the Union, putting up these incredible monuments to their role in the Civil War. Like if you go to Indianapolis in the middle of the city is an enormous monument to the Union that dwarfs any most, most monuments to the Confederacy across the South. And they saw these symbols in the North and they said, well, you know, we need something to, you know, to advocate for our side too. And then at the same time, the North was pouring so much money into the South, mainly through railroads, right? But through different investments and everything else, that's what built the new South, Northern dollars. And so a lot of people have suggested it was sort of a psychological device, you know, as they were reliant on Northern money that they then began to venerate the old, the old South through the Confederacy. Well, let me just, you know, just raise with you the who. Uh, you, you talked about the uh, time frame that uh, these uh, monuments began to uh, sprout up uh, in, the, uh, in the South and I guess uh, eventually uh, around the country. But uh, who was responsible for this, uh, for this surge and the uh, planting of these uh, monuments, uh, particularly at the uh, Courthouse Square? Well, that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, you know, we know that certain organizations uh, played a, a big role. Uh, for instance, um, the Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, and I would imagine the Sons also, um, were a, a big part of this effort to have these monuments um, installed, uh, but not just installed, but erected in certain locations in public places. Uh, you know, quite often you hear, uh, you know, that, you know, we, we want these monuments to honor the Confederate dead. Well, if it was really, if that was the sole purpose, then they would have remained in graveyards for, I think, early on, you know, following the Civil War, you know, 10 years or so, or, you know, after. That's where they were. It was after that time, around this time that we are talking now, the 1890s, 1900, 1910, 1920 and beyond, that you began to see the erection of these monuments in the public squares and public places. And courtyards were one of the more a popular sites for for erecting these monuments, um, and and so there's the question of like who provided the resources, um, and you know to have them have you know, to have them constructed, and quite often it was the daughters of the Confederacy, and we know this because we go to the websites that have information about these monuments and that information is provided. But it wasn't just the Daughters of the Confederacy. It, it was also um, key public officials uh, were also responsible because there would be these elaborate ceremonies quite often when these monuments were installed. And uh, quite often you would have you know, the political elite, it could be uh, the governor, it could be the attorney general in North Carolina. And I'm talking about specifically about those that were erected in, in courtyard squares from 1910 to 1912. 
Chief Justice Walter Clark made dedication speeches for Confederate monuments that were erected in four, at least four counties, Caldwell, Pender, Perquimans, and Randolph counties. Uh, I think he may have also been a former, um, he may have been a former Confederate uh, a soldier. I don't know what his rank was. Uh, you know, the attorney general of the state of North Carolina during the early 1900s, I think uh, his name, T, one of them, T.W. Bickett, was the dedication speaker for several of these uh, monuments that are erected. He went on to become the governor of the state of North Carolina. And so you had not only organizations like the Daughters, but you had people in positions of power and influence who supported this uh, white supremacy uh, narrative and theme that were also, I think, very instrumental in the installation of these monuments. Yeah, I, I just want to underscore a couple of different things. Um, yeah, it's, so it's largely the United Daughters of the Confederacy who erects these things. And these are, when, when you look under the hood, that's, that's what we see. We see this organization. But when you examine even further under the hood, one of the things that you see is that the organization, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, was comprised of elite white women, okay? The class dynamic here is absolutely crucial. And when you start to look at who some of these people were, they were the wives of, you know, local businessmen, local politicians. But then when you look even closer into their history, which we've done now for several of these different places, they were also so often the daughters of elite slave owner, you know, plantocracy, so a lot of these elite white women had, you know, their wealth went back for generations, and a lot of it was quite literally rooted in the enslavement of African Americans. We see this time and time again. We looked at this with Chatham County. You know, Chatham County, at the dedication speech, you can see who the officers were. And when you go and you pull up your Ancestry.com and you look at their backgrounds, they all came from these elite white slave-owning families. And I think what, a couple of things are important here. One is that well, women didn't really get to engage with society in the same way that their husbands could at the time, right? Because of sexism. And so to erect Confederate monuments, to make speeches like this was one unique way that white women could be leaders in society. The other interesting thing with class is that in North Carolina, 1898, as many people know, we had this Wilmington massacre, right? That was largely designed to break up a working class coalition between poor whites and poor blacks. And then, of course, after that, all our Confederate monuments start to pop up across the state. Well, who benefits from breaking up that working class coalition? Elite rich whites, right? And so those same elite rich whites led this movement to erect these Confederate monuments, telling poor whites, this is for you. You know, give your nickel, give your, give your dime or whatever. Everybody can contribute. But we want to make sure that we are building our political sensibilities around race and not class. And one of the things that's really remarkable is how effective they were in doing that, you know, venerating the Confederacy to make sure that people worried more about, you know, race and the Confederacy in the Old South than class. But one of the remarkable things about that is how well it still works today. Those monuments were in large way designed to make sure that poor whites were more worried about race than anything else. Those monuments, even today in the year 2021, still have the same effect by making sure that poor whites are more worried about Confederate monuments than they are about class issues. 
such as education or Medicaid expansion or mass incarceration or any number, number of different issues. Yeah, and you know, to, to pick up on that point, um, prior to you know, 2015, I think there were many in the general public who were not acutely aware of, of these monuments. And, uh, you know, certainly we would see them, but, you know, there are a number of people who, who wouldn't be able to tell you who they were and, and who they represented. Uh, can, can you all talk about the importance of their removal? Because there are, there are folks that are arguing that it's, it represents history, that, um, you know, to take them down means that, that we want to erase history. Um, we're going to have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd like for both of you to expand upon the importance of, one, understanding the history, and two, the importance of making sure that they are not represented in the way that they are in our public squares. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM, and we've been talking this hour with attorney James Williams, retired Orange County chief public defender and co-founder of NC Cred, and also Dr. William Sturkey, professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill and author of Hattiesburg, an American City in Black and White. We're going to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. A monument serves to commemorate a person or event. Usually, monuments occupy public spaces that bolster the significance of a monument's symbolic and aesthetic qualities. However, as public spaces surrounding a monument evolve, the placement of the monument can alter how the monument is perceived. Various monuments in North Carolina illustrate this complicated relationship between monuments and the spaces they occupy. After the Civil War ended in 1865, Southerners began honoring the Confederacy with statutes and other symbols. Those opposed to public displays honoring the Confederacy raised their objections, but with little success. In 2015, white supremacist Dylan Roof massacred nine African Americans at a historic church in Charleston, South Carolina. Pictures surfaced depicting Roof with the Confederate battle flag in one hand and a gun in the other. This tragic event shed light again on the dark history behind the Confederacy and sparked a nationwide movement to remove Confederate monuments, flags, and other symbols from the public square. Despite the national call for removal of these symbols, today the vast majority of these emblems still remain in place. Approximately a month after the attack against black church members in South Carolina, the North Carolina General Assembly passed Statute 100-2.1, essentially prohibiting cities and counties from removing a monument owned by the state without approval by a state agency. While supporters of the monuments in North Carolina state that the monuments represent Southern heritage, opponents believe the monuments are a symbol of white supremacy, racism, and hundreds of years of systemic oppression against people of color. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and a legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening.
And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney James Williams, retired Orange County Chief Public Defender and co-founder of NCCRED, which stands for the North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities. Also joining us in our studio is Dr. William Sturkey, professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill and author of Hattiesburg, an American city in black and white. And right before the break, I was asking both of you if you would share your thoughts on why it's important that we identify and understand the history behind these monuments and and also remove them, even though there are many in our community who may not be particularly aware of what these monuments represent? Well, I'll I'll start. Um, One of the reasons that that NC Cred um, is is mounting this campaign is to do the very thing that was embedded in your question. And that is to educate the members of the public who may have a false understanding of what, you know, when these monuments were uh, erected and what they represent. And that's why it was important that we have the support um, and guidance of, of uh, historians like uh, Professor Sturkey uh, to support this effort. Because there are so many people who were miseducated and who hold on to these false beliefs about both the, the why they were erected and what they represent. And so these are, are monuments um, that um, venerate the Confederacy and, uh, and the military effort to create a, a slaveocracy and to uh, force a a whole uh, demographic of people into uh, slavery, you know, based upon the the color of their skin. Uh, That's what these monuments honor and represent to me and to so many other black people. Uh, and other people of color. So they are reminders of this history of oppression, of suppression and of inequality and prejudice and hate and racism. Uh, and so the, the last place that they should be are in public spaces and particularly in courtyard spaces because you know, any and every time that a person like me or a person of color or a black person walks past that monument, it's a reminder of, of that history and is saying something to us currently. And so the other piece of this is, I think what a community holds dear and values today is reflected in in, in what they choose to honor and venerate and these monuments should not be present because they are saying 
that this is what these communities value now. And to those who say that to remove the monuments, you know, is um, to, to whitewash history or eradicate history, you know, I saw someone just recently, I saw something that said, well, does removing the sign that says colored only mean that we don't know the history or can't teach the history of Jim Crow? The process of removing these monuments is just another opportunity to educate people about the true history of what these monuments represent. So the, the concern about, you know, the eradication of history uh, doesn't, you know, just doesn't hold water, but it does provide an opportunity to tell the true and the accurate history about these monuments. Yeah, April, I, I wouldn't mind engaging with a couple of the most common sayings that we hear in response to removing Confederate monuments. One is we've all heard this. It, we've all heard this saying, you can't erase history. We've also heard this saying, those who don't remember our history are bound to repeat it, right? Something of, of that effect. Let me deal with both of those. I'll do with the erasure part first. People act as if today's citizens are biased in ways that citizens in the past were not. Okay, we we somehow these have these sensibilities that were somehow impossible for people in the past to imagine. That couldn't be further from the truth. Okay, the people that put the Confederate monuments up were incredibly biased white supremacist historical actors. Okay, and we know this based on their teachings elsewhere in schools and in their books, whatever. You know, they did they go and ask formerly enslaved people was slavery good? No, never. Right. They said slavery wasn't that bad, right? Some of the enslaved people were quite happy. The U United Daughters of the Confederacy wrote a book about the Ku Klux Klan. They promoted the Ku Klux Klan. They defended the ideas behind it. Did they go and ask any of the Klan victims, right, from the 1870 Klan testimonies in front of the Senate? Did they go and ask those people about the Klan? No, of course they didn't, right? They weren't, they weren't unbiased historical actors. They constantly said that the Civil War was not about slavery. But when you go and you look at the documents produced by the people that started the Civil War, they say constantly, all the time, we're doing this because of slavery. So those people that put up the monuments were incredibly biased historical actors. We live in a more democratic society now than we ever did back then. More people have a say now in what should happen to monuments than ever did back then when it just a handful of elite people got to decide, right? So this whole idea of you can't erase history is a false premise. It's awful history that we're looking at, right? Th these people, you know, all of their other ideas have been debunked. None of them stand up. The only thing that we still have left are their relics. So there's that. The second thing is those who can't remember their history are bound to repeat it. It's an old adage, and it's something that is just really thoughtless, quite frankly. We don't need, as James said, the no colored allowed signs to teach the Jim Crow era. Those have been taken down, right? And in places where Confederate monuments have been removed, we've actually been testing this theory, right? So people that say those who don't remember their history are bound to repeat it. Well, I work on a campus where we had a Confederate monument and we don't have it anymore. And I can assure you that we can still teach that history. I can also assure you that no one has come close to suggesting that we secede from the union, that we enslave one third of the population, 
or that we invade the state of Pennsylvania. So that we got, we've tested some of this out so far, actually. That's going pretty well, right? And so, you know, we don't need all of these relics put up by these incredibly biased white supremacist historical actors to teach the history. The problem that we're counting, that we're confronting now is that there might be some value in having these things in separate spaces than courthouses and in the middle of college campuses, but they've become so toxic by our unwillingness to deal with them for the last 60 to 70 years that they've become rallying points for white supremacists. And now people in museums don't want them. You know, they asked the people in Wilson Library, well, could we maybe put Silent Sam there? And they said, no, you can't put it here because white supremacists come to that thing with guns. So had we dealt with this a bit more um, forcefully in the beginning, I think, with a little bit more clarity, maybe they could still be used in museums, but some of them have just become so toxic that they're unusable now. Well, let me uh, go back for a second uh, uh, to a, a previous answer that, uh, that you all gave, given dealing with uh, the who. Uh, who who erected this and who financed the uh, placement of these uh, statues around? And the, the and the question is, you know, it, you, you said the daughters of the uh, Confederacy and other uh, Confederate related uh, organizations. Uh, what was the process by which those statues became public property? Uh, I understand that they were placed in public locations and public space, uh, but that did that kind of ipso facto uh, make them then the public property of the county or the state or the entity uh, in uh, which uh, these uh, statues were, uh, were located? I know that some of them were uh, given or gifted to the various counties, let's say, if they were, you know, placed on courtyard spaces um, by the organizations like the Daughters of the Confederacy, who I, I'm assuming were the original owners. Um, I, I'm sure Professor Sturkey can enlighten more particularly with the ones like Silent Sam that was located there on UNC's campus. Um, but yeah, so they were usually, I don't know. So, you know, sometimes there may have been some governmental funds used, uh, but the ones that I'm most familiar with, usually they, the, they were provided by the organization and either leased to or some sort of contractual relationship to the governmental entity or just given to, gifted to uh, the entities. And, and therein lies some differing avenues for how they might be removed and not quote, run afoul of the North Carolina's monument preservation law or Confederate monument protection law is what it, really is because it it depends on part of it depends upon who actually owns the monument and in some cases the argument can be made that it's not the county for instance it's some other 
some other entity. Um, but in terms of the exact mechanism, uh, it might vary to some extent, but usually they, they were provided to the govern, governing entity of, of the place where they were located. At least that's my understanding. Yeah, I think this is where there is a lot of room in, in this interpretation legally today. There's a lot of gray area. Mm -hmm. So the process by which you would put up a Confederate monument in, say, 1905 was far less rigorous than the process <laughs> by which you would remove a Confederate monument in the year 2021. This is, again, where class plays a, a central um, role here, because, you know, a lot of these southern towns and counties were essentially run by a handful of elite white families, right? And oftentimes, these elite white families would cycle between different roles, right? One of them might have an uncle that's that's the, the mayor at that point in time, and his brother would be the head of the Chamber of Commerce. And maybe his wife would be the United Daughters of the Confederacy. So, I mean, the way that this worked would be that these elite white families would basically hatch a deal. They would announce it to the newspaper man, who was probably also in their crew, be it on the Chamber of Commerce or the United Daughters of the Confederacy um, with his wife. And they would say, look, town, we're going to put up this Confederate monument. So-and-so gave $100. Can you give 10 cents or 10, you know, five cents, whatever you can? And these elite white families would just put the damn thing there, you know? No questions asked, right? There wasn't really any you know, super rigorous process. They might want it in front of um, somebody's store instead of a courthouse, but oftentimes it was just a handful of wealthy white people just saying, look, we're going to put this here and you should love it. And that's how they went up. So, you know, today we have a much higher standard for how they might have to go down. We have to go to court and this and that, but boy, that's not how they went up at all. Yeah. I, I raised that question because I've seen in, in recent uh, litigation around some of these uh, statutes where the ownership of the uh, statute is, uh, is, is in question and is of legal significance in determining whether that constitutes a violation of the uh, statute there being the assumption that uh, these statutes are all owned by the county or by the state or by the city or some uh, governmental uh, entities. Uh, the, the next question I wanna raise is, you know, I'm amazed at the uh, shabbiness of these statutes. Uh, I, I look at, uh, uh, April mentioned uh, Durham and the statute that came down uh, in uh, Durham in, um, uh, I think it was 2017, um, uh, that uh, you could just throw a rope around it and pull it down. And then I look at uh, Silent Sam uh, and uh, some people just threw a rope around that and just pulled it down. It, it, it defied my concept of what a statute was because I thought it was, you know, really sturdy and in place such that uh, it would endure the passage of, of, of time. Uh, were these Rich people that you talked about, uh, Dr. Sturkett, doing this on the cheap? <laughs> a lot of them were doing it on the cheap. Absolutely. You know, they didn't have the resources to build the same sorts of monuments that were built in many places in the North. There are some Confederate monuments that are, that are very, very expensive and well done, like the ones in Richmond. 
but yeah, not every county had the resources to, to erect a, a very nice one. And a lot of them, of course, were, were mass manufactured. Right. And, you know, uh, and it, it does vary to some extent. I, I agree with Professor Stur Most of the ones that we are aware of here in North Carolina weren't that sturdy as, say, some of the ones in Richmond and, and that sort of place. But even... But the ones at, from what I understand, at the Capitol in North Carolina, which were some of the earlier ones that were erected, and there was a there was a fairly strong uh, political movement to actually erect those. I think they were done. Um, you know, they were more well constructed. In fact, when they were removed last year, it took a while to remove them. They had to call in, bring in special equipment. Uh, to remove them because they were so well constructed and, and anchored. Uh, but that's the exception and not the rule, you know, in terms of most of the monuments, I think, that we see, uh, see here in North Carolina. We're going to uh, do a, a deep dive, um, James, into the campaign to remove Confederate monuments and, and your committee, NC Cred's committee. Um, we've got just a few minutes before we take our break, but I wanted to get your thoughts as we're talking about Confederate symbols. Uh, we all remember what happened on January 6th. We had the storming of the Capitol. We've got an impeachment trial that's currently going on um, regarding Trump. And one of the pictures that I know you all remember seeing was of one of the um, insurrectionists inside the Capitol with a Confederate flag. And this kind of goes to William's point about the toxicity of this symbol and how it is being used. Um, I also think it really kind of underscores his point about the elite class kind of, uh, you know, using this symbol to galvanize those that don't necessarily fit within that class structure uh, and, and using race as a divisive issue so that the other uh, more important issues like healthcare, like um, uh, you know, a living wage, that these other issues are kind of set aside. We're going to have to take a quick break, but when we come back, before we do go a, do a deep dive into the campaign, I'd like for you all to just share your thoughts about any impressions that you had when you saw that Confederate flag uh, inside the Capitol. So you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about Confederate monuments and symbols in the state of North Carolina and quite frankly, the country. We have with us as our guest, attorney James Williams, retired Orange County chief public defender and co-founder of the North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities, and Dr. William Sturkey, professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill and author of Hattiesburg, an American City in Black and White. We're gonna take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We will be right back. evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review. 
an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. Back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, continue this uh, conversation uh, regarding the uh, campaign to remove Confederate monuments and the uh, history of these uh, Confederate uh, monuments. We have as our guest uh, for this uh, discussion uh, Dr. William Sturkey, who's a professor of history at uh, UNC Chapel Hill and is the author of Hattiesburg, an American City in Black and White, and Attorney James Williams, who is a retired Orange County Chief Public Defender and is the uh, co-founder of the uh, North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic uh, Disparities. And we're gonna talk a little bit uh, about the uh, campaign that, uh, that they are directing to remove Confederate monuments from the uh, courthouse uh, spaces. But uh, April left us with a, a, a question dealing with the uh, toxicity uh, associated with the um, uh, Confederate flag and the uh, symbolism uh, of its use during the uh, January 6th insurrection that occurred in uh, Washington, uh, D.C., the uh, unsuccessful insurrection uh, that occurred on January 6th in uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, so I just want to just pose that to, uh, to our guests uh, for, for their thoughts uh, on, that, uh, on that subject. You know, when I, the, the, the image of the flag, um, and, and I know, I think I read somewhere that that was the first time that the Confederate flag had, had been in that space. But then um, there, you know, in their statutes of people who stood for what the Confederacy stood for in that space, right? Um, sure, I mean, uh, I was somewhat, you know, incensed about the flag being there, but I was more incensed about the whole thing, uh, this whole, uh, but it wasn't, in some sense, it was an experience for certain people what black folk have experienced, you know, for centuries, this whole mob violence, this whole uh, uh, insurrection, racial terror. Uh, and so that to me, you know, was a reflection of how these symbols can be used and have been used over time to perpetuate certain um, uh, certain myths, uh, but also to you know to to seed into the minds of folk 
the inferiority and the lack of humanity of another category of people. And so, you know, that to me, the fact that this insurrection occurred and it was about the fact at some level that black people went out and voted and voted in somebody other than the white supremacists in chief. And it was that rage and that anger and, and the, this bold attempt to undo that by insurrection and mob violence that probably struck a bigger chord with me than the fact that the Confederate flag was in that space. Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, a lot of people were mortified. They were on TV clutching their pearls. Oh, my God, how could this happen? Well, look, we are a country. We are a region that all across our landscape has memorials to white nationalists who declared war on the United States of America in order to protect white supremacy. So, like, why do these people think they were in the right? All they have to do is go down to their local county courthouse in North Carolina. What happens when you rebel against the federal government in the name of white nationalism and you declare this is a white man's country and you're going to overthrow it with violence? Well, in North Carolina or in Texas or Mississippi or Louisiana, you get a statue put up of you, you know, and we teach you about how great the Confederacy was for decades. Even in, if you move off of the Civil War, right? In, in North Carolina, we had the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. We have four buildings on my campus at UNC Chapel Hill named after people who participated in the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. So what happens when you overthrow uh, a, a government elected by black voters? Well, you get a building named after you, right? You're a hero. So of course they had the confidence, you know, that, that their actions were just and that they would, they would be, you know, remembered well in history. And so I think one of the ways that we have to move beyond that is to stop celebrating these people who sought to overthrow our democracy in the name of white supremacy. All right, well, just kind of shifting uh, from that and going to uh, April's other point, uh, having to do with the uh, campaign that uh, North Carolina Cred is, uh, has organized and is implementing. I believe, Jim, uh, James, that you, you're starting this up uh, now as a, uh, an official uh, campaign, although work toward it has been going on for uh, some time. So can you kind of explain a little bit about the, uh, uh, the actions, the activities uh, uh, that uh, that's engaged or that's involved in this effort? Uh, that you are uh, undertaking. Um, thank you, Irv. Um, so the, the North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities has expressed this concern about these Confederate monuments and other symbols of hate and white supremacy. Uh, actually, since 2017, we initially did a resolution asking that those these monuments be removed from courtyard spaces uh, and and, and courts, um, uh, courtyards and courthouses uh, in 2017. Uh, in 2019, the National Consortium on Racial and Ethnic Fairness, Fairness in the Courts, of which NC Cred is a constituent member, also issued a resolution calling for the removal of these monuments from court spaces and courtyards. 
one of the reasons, I mean, we've already spoke about why I think it's so important that court yards and court spaces be the last place uh, that you would see monuments to inequality and hate and, and white supremacy. That's where people go seeking justice and fairness. And certainly these monuments stand for something different than that. Uh, you know, another reason that we, um, another reason that it's important that uh, those particularly in courtyards be removed is because of the history that courts have played, courts and court officials, including lawyers and judges, have played in the, the, not only the oppression and discrimination and the terrorization of black people, and, um, but using the law and the court setting to facilitate that. It's worth also pointing out that, you know, we talked a bit about the um, 1898 coup in, in, um, in, in Wilmington. Um, and at least four or five leaders of the 1898 uh, massacre there in Wilmington uh, and the uh, 1899 North Carolina legislature um, were people who went on in 1899 to form the North Carolina Bar Association. They were lawyers. So people like Francis Winston, Fernifold Simmons, uh, Harriet Clarkson, Charles B. Acock, Robert Brown, Alfred Moore. These are people who then later created the Bar Association and then took further action to facilitate you know, Jim Crow and racial discrimination in this country. So it's important, it's extremely important that these uh, monuments be removed because some of those same officials were also instrumental in seeing that these monuments were erected. And so what we have done um, by planning this campaign and the campaign will officially launch on February 14 uh, on, on Sunday. Um, we want to be a, a resource to communities uh, and uh, local officials who are having discussions or who want to have discussions about these monuments, some of whom actually want to have already started trying to get them removed, but don't have the information, whether that is access to the proper history or whether that is, uh, you know, some legal guidance as it relates to, you know, the removal process um, or uh, whether that is simply sort of an action plan. How, what steps do we need to take? So one of the things that we plan to do when we launch, we're gonna have a website or landing page that's gonna have these various tools and information that will be helpful to communities in, in bringing about that result and in answering some of those questions and providing information about, you know, if you need a historian to, uh, to come to your community or appear by way of web uh, or Zoom to talk about what, 
these monuments actually represent and the history of them, that it, that can be provided also. So in a nutshell, that's what we, that's what we hope to do. We're going to uh, maybe be able to, if people need help trying to develop op-eds or, or other uh, communication pieces for the public at large, to maybe provide some assistance in that area. Um, we, this campaign is being supported by a number of organizations because we at NC Cred know that we cannot do this alone. It's in, North Carolina is a large state. These monuments are actually situated from the mountains to the coast. And so, so we are gonna be partnering with some organizations that have foot soldiers, if you will, or at least contacts within uh, you know, all aspects of the state of North Carolina, organizations like the North Carolina NAACP, the North Carolina ACLU, the North Carolina Council of Churches, uh, the Forward Justice, uh, Southern Coalition for Social Justice, just name some of the organizations that will be a part of, of, of this effort and this campaign. Um, so in, in a nutshell, uh, that's, what, that's, that's what we're planning to do. Well, let me just follow up that with a question to uh, Dr. Starkey, uh, based on a comment that you had mentioned earlier, does not the uh, removal of these uh, statutes uh, bleach out uh, an opportunity to, uh, in the future, explain this history and educate people about the uh, wrongs that uh, these uh, individuals were uh, engaged in in the lofty uh, positions that they occupied at the time. You know, one of the things I think is really interesting about these discussions is the fact that, is this simple fact, okay? It's a simple fact. Nobody uses them for educational purposes now. Okay, it's not until this discussion comes up about removal that people say, no, 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 we need them to educate. But right now, as it stands, people don't go to Confederate monuments to lay flowers unless there's a controversy. They don't go there to pray for the dead, certainly. Most people defending Confederate monuments in a county cannot name a single person who served in the Confederacy from that county. So like we don't take classrooms there as it is right now. They're just symbols to this lost cause. They're not even used for education now. So how can you therefore make the argument that we need them for educational purposes when we don't even use them as they're standing now? So it's something that doesn't make a lot of sense to me when I hear that. But the other thing is that if they are removed, they could then be curated right in a museum or some other sort of display that would actually make them far more available for educational purposes than they are now. All right, well, so we just have a few minutes left. Um, James, can you talk about real quickly if there are folks in the community who want to reach out to your organization, they want to be more educated about this, this um, topic, uh, maybe seek to have um, some monuments removed within their county to know if there are any there. What's the best way for them to reach out to your um, campaign and coalition? Um, well, so certainly they, I think I mentioned that we're going to have a, a website or landing page 
on our website, um, which is um, www.ncred.org. So a lot of that information, that, that, the, that landing page hasn't gone live yet, but it will within the next several days. So a lot of that information is gonna be located on that uh, uh, web page. They certainly are welcome to communicate with, with me uh, and, and I can provide, uh, you know, further information and guidance. So, um, and, uh, so that's, I can give you my email address. Um, those are probably the two best ways, uh, to get more information related to the campaign and what is happening and how, you know, people, we can help them, uh, in their efforts to remove these monuments. All right. And we should mention that, uh, as of the airing of this, it will actually be on Sunday, February 14th. So uh, as you're hearing this, we encourage you to go to that webpage, find out how you can get more information on the North Carolina Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities and the campaign to remove Confederate monuments in North Carolina, especially those on our courthouse public squares. We'd like to thank our guest, Attorney James Williams, retired Orton County Chief Public Defender and co-founder of NC Cred, and Dr. William Sturkey, Professor of History at UNC Chapel Hill and author of Hattiesburg, an American City in Black and White. And as always, we'd like to thank you for taking time out of your Sunday evening and listening to the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.